This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where those of you on podcasts, radio stations around the country, CBSN, and Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 have come to know is about two things, being relentlessly curious and steadfastly non-ideological. We talk to lots of different people, get lots of different perspectives. I am delighted to have the guests we have this week. It is not difficult, ladies and gentlemen, for me to find people who are smarter than I am. That's easy. What I sometimes am lucky enough to do is find people who are massively smarter than I am and funny as hell and have a great and interesting perspective on things that matter in the connection, in this case, between politics and economics, not just here in America, but across the world. Mark Blythe is our special guest. He is a return guest. You may remember we had him on the show a couple of years ago, back when we were in restaurants. We had a morning encounter, I think I'll safely describe it as that, at District Taco. We had lots of breakfast tacos and some um, beverages uh, that were not exactly on the menu, but we figured out a way to bring them there anyway, and they were delicious, and it was all great. Mark, it's great to see you again virtually. I wish we were at a restaurant, but we'll get to that eventually. It would be lovely. (laughs) <laughs> Would it not? So, Mark, uh, for those of you who are watching on CBSN, where are you and what's all that cool gear behind you? I'm in my basement. Um, so everyone should have a room in the basement for a lockdown. I had a choice between basically decking it out with musical instruments that have been in storage for years and using them while I grew my lockdown Taliban beard or just becoming an alcoholic like everyone else. So I managed to skirt that fine line between drunkenness and the broken musician. And here I am now. And tell my audience what you do at Brown University. I'm the janitor. No, that's not true. Um, I am the... Shush, shush. I am the William R. Rhodes 57 Professor of International Economics and Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at the Watson Institute at Brown University. And I think you get more points in Scrabble for that than anything else. I think that's probably true. Tell my audience the name of your new book. My new book is simply called Angrynomics. What is Angrynomics? Angrynomics is the condition that happens when most people in an economy no longer believe that the economy benefits them. Is there something that is related between Donald Trump, Brexit, and Angrynomics? Oh, hell yeah. So about five years ago, I did a piece for Foreign Affairs that basically was trying to make sense of Trump 
And I got Trump six months before the election. So this is all documented. Your, your listeners can check this out. And what well, That's why we had you on the first yeah, time. That's why you doing the first time, right? So what was it that I saw then? It wasn't the fact that Clinton was a horrible candidate, which was true. It wasn't the fact that the Democrats are tone deaf to working class interests and continue to be so, which is true. It's the fact that right across the world, we'd basically been fragilizing the economy. Here's what I mean by this. The risk that you used to be borne by firms in terms of the benefits that you would give to workers, gone. Right? The security of contract, the ability to set your own hours, increasingly unlikely to get this. The fact you even know who your employer is because it's franchise upon franchise upon franchise. The fact that they, there's a huge upswelling in inequality with most of the growth that's gone over the past 40 years going to a very small part of the population. And every time there's a big financial crisis, the people with the assets get bailed out and the people who don't have the assets are the ones that are told to suck it and see. And we've seen exactly the same thing play out in COVID again. That that generates a lot of anger. And the book was an attempt by me and a buddy of mine, Eric Lonergan, to write a dialogue about this that everybody can understand. It's not a technical book that tries to put in context where this has been coming from over the past 30 years and why it has these big macro components, but also what we call micro-angrynomics, these little stressors and strains that are being put into our daily lives that grind us down, that combine with these inequalities to produce an economy that no longer benefits the people who constitute it. That's one of the things I love to talk to you about because you have you identify and have identified things that I've never seen anyone else talk about. What's a micro stressor? Can you give me one or two examples that my audience would say, God, I didn't even know I would. Yes, that, that, I didn't even know it had a name. Yeah, well, think about it. Why is the rise in obesity coming in? So the rise in obesity is basically a correlate of economic inequality. You go across the world, the most unequal societies are the ones that are the most obese. What does obesity do to you? It gives you a stress hormone called cortisol. What does cortisol do? It makes you even fatter. It makes you eat the wrong things. It makes you feel depressed. So if you're stuck in a job where you're snacking all day and you can't get out and the, the uh, demands of work are increasingly stringent, bathroom breaks, mobility, where you can go, etc., etc., you're basically hardwiring your body for stress hormones, which manifests itself in obesity. So all of these sort of economic inequalities that we have have these kind of biological correlates which show up in our body or themselves. Now, it would not come as any surprise to you, Mark, to have people in my audience who are people of color say, yeah, that's the life we've always lived. It's only white people in a certain part of America or a certain part of Europe that are suddenly experiencing it. A welcome to the club. I think that's exactly right, because what happened was our most vulnerable populations, the most marginal populations, are the ones that are always exposed to the rough edge of capitalism. They're the ones that don't have the benefits. They're the ones that basically have always worked at the margin. And what we've seen is that increasing marginalization is going further through the working class of America and the middle class of America, and stresses and strains are rising. Think about during the pandemic. Would you ever thought you would have seen so many under five-year-old SUVs in a five-mile line? to go to a food bank. Let's just think about the economics that makes that possible. Precisely. And I think Americans were astonished to see that. Or if they were not astonished, they were like, wow, that is a corner we've now turned. Exactly, because you don't have the cash reserves. You don't have the savings. You're living transaction to transaction. So look, and if you, think about the, if you think about the way the economy itself structured, think about how this affects different generations. Assets, houses, stocks, bonds, all the stuff that basically acts as a safety net, it's all owned by the old. Think about millennials. Think about the millennials that you work with and you interact with, right? They don't own albums. 
They stream everything. Everything is transactional. They have a zero asset cushion and they come out of college with a ton of debt. Guess what the net result of that is? They get married later. They're having fewer kids. They're not confident about the future. All of these stresses and strains are showing up in different ways across different generations. Now, one of the buffers for the middle class in the United States for decades were labor unions that collectively bargained on behalf of protections of work hours, wages, and benefits. They are also much more predominant in Europe, yet this problem exists in both places. We know that private sector unions in America have been on decline for the past 30 to 35 years, but have they been in that stark a decline in Europe? And if they're not, why isn't that a buffer in Europe? It is still more of a buffer, but they're protecting fewer and fewer people over time. Traditionally, they're industrial unions. They tend to be concentrated in European export sectors. Think car workers, this sort of stuff, who are traditionally higher paid anyway. Where you really see the decline is in the service sector. Now, this is a common story. If you think about it, what do we do in the service sector? We sell each other things. We don't make things for each other. We give each other services, right? A lot of those services, like massage, it's very hard to add capital to that, right? If you're a hairdresser, you can't invent a machine that does 100 haircuts at once, not unless you're in a slaughterhouse, and that's going to end up bad, right? So you can't add capital, obvious, to this. This leads to low productivity. This leads to low, low wages, right? But there's another story behind this as well, and I'll give you an example of this. Have you ever seen at a Hilton hotel. Yes. How many hotels does Hilton own? Uh, uh, probably zero, very close to zero. Very it, close it, to it, zero. It franchises, it markets the name. You got it, and exactly. real estate companies uh, and holding companies have the Hilton properties. They own very few. So everyone in that building who's providing services, whether it's janitors, cleaners, cooks, etc., probably works for another company that's on part of that franchise chain. You know how those franchises make money? They squeeze labor. It's all basically about extracting as much as possible by paying as little as possible. So we're building a business model, basically, that, that gives the hard edge of capitalism to as many workers as possible. And we don't have unions or other organizations to basically say, hey, this is not fair. We should not have these types of contracts. So I want to begin the Trump conversation. You got it right six months ahead of time. Did you care whether or not Trump was going to be elected or you just saw it coming? I just saw it coming. Do you care one way or the other? I do, because ultimately, I think that climate change is the single biggest problem that we're facing. Many people are in denial about it. It requires a huge rethink and a huge retrofit of government and how we think about investment. Time is running out. And when you have climate change denier in chief running the United States, that is a big problem at a global level. So, yeah, I do care. That's Mark Blythe. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to Enjoying the Takeout. Back for segment two in a second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. 
What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Mark Blythe is our guest. He is a professor of international economics. Is that the best way to describe it, Mark? Yeah, that's the title of the moment. Prior to that was political economy. Right. So uh, what do you think Trump's prospects are now? You are a consumer of the mass media in the United States. You know the mass media, my network included, it has its own polling data, says, well, Trump's an underdog, possibly decidedly so. Yeah, that's the conservative way of putting it. I'd be a little bit more effusive. I think that Trump has got a lot more left than people give him credit for. Here's why. So I looked up some numbers before we had this conversation because I wanted to make sure I got it right. So there are 87 million people, according to 2080 numbers, who fit the description of the American working class, specifically the white working class. So let's just take all the women out of this, half it. Let's say there's 40 million, 45 million white working class men. So let's start with the data. Those are the people who, even though their numbers are shrinking every year since 2012, they're voting more. Those are the people who, yes, absolutely were not the majority of the Trump coalition, but they made a difference in the five states that really mattered last time. And crucially, when it comes to rallies, when it comes to identification, that's who Trump signals to. Right? In the book, we have a quote from Trump opening a chapter where he goes to a rally in Pennsylvania and says, I am your voice. Right? It's a strong link between these communities. Now, let's go from data to anecdata. I've got a bunch of working class friends in Providence, and I asked a couple of the guys, uh, what do you think of Democrats? So what do you mean? So when you think of Democrats, what do you think? And without missing a beat, one of them says this to me. Trans rights, black lives, and the environment. And the environment is just an excuse to hand out jobs to minorities. Now, these men are not overwhelmingly conservative or ideological or anything. I said, well, why do you think that? It's just the Democratic Party don't care about people like us. They don't design policies for people like us. Fact number three. I posted this on Twitter several months ago. Somebody did an analysis of where the Democrats and the Republicans get their activists, where do they get their analysts, where do they get their pollsters, where do they get the people that constitute the party. Basically, the Democrats are Ivy League plus, by which I mean you might get as far as Berkeley. They draw from an incredibly small talent pool. They all know each other, they all talk to each other, and they have, as far as I can figure out, very, very limited contacts, possibly through what's left of American unions, into those working class communities to get their side of the message across. And because those connections aren't there, they do not connect with my friends. They do not get to say their side of the story. They do not get to say that there's a jobs plan. They do not get to say that we're crazy for investment and infrastructure. All the things that Trump still has a monopoly on pretending, at least, that that's what he cares about for these people. So I think that discounts as a real problem because that's 40 million people. Now, look, they're not all going to vote for Trump, but it's very hard to build a winning electoral coalition without them. And what the Democrats have eventually done is to try and do that. 
So do you think Democrats are setting themselves up for another 2016 surprise and crushing defeat? Not crushing defeat, but I think it's going to be closer. And what that's going to allow Trump to do is to throw as much sand in the wheels as possible to start with claims about fraud and falsification. Perhaps you got a couple of states on his side that refuse to send their electors to the Electoral College or certify results, and the whole thing ends up in the Supreme Court. I actually expect the whole thing to end up in the Supreme Court. A Trump-dominated Supreme Court, or certainly influenced if not dominated. Or at least conservative. But again, what do we mean by this? I always like to point out to my American friends that the Warren Court was an exception and a fleeting one. The, Trump, the court is a conservative institution. That's what it does. And despite that, think about all of the things that it has passed and allowed to pass. Yes, there's been egregious examples on campaign finance and other examples that we could say that, well, that's the action of the conservative court favoring one party. But just last week, the, or at least a few days ago, the Pennsylvania got was told, no, you can't basically interfere with ballots in this way. So it's not clear to me that if it ends up there, that's the slam dunk for Trump. But... That may be his last. That may be his Haley, Hail Mary pass, even if it's not a slam dunk, if I may mix my American sporting metaphors. <laughs> exactly. We're always doing that here, mixing all kinds of metaphors. So you said a moment ago that Trump might be pretending to care about these voters. Looking at the record of his first term, is there something materially different for those voters that is decidedly pro their interests that Trump can point to? I'm honestly baffled, and I don't mean this as like taking a position on this. I mean, just analytically, I am baffled by working class voters who say he's kept his promises. I just want to know which ones. So is it the promise to build a wall, if that was your thing? Well, that didn't work. Uh, is it the promise that he will bring back manufacturing? That certainly didn't work. What has he actually done? He did a hardy perennial for Republicans. He did a massive tax cut, which benefited the top 1% and the top 0.1% more than anyone else. He took a machine gun to environmental regulations, which paradoxically hurts those communities, which are in areas that have been environmentally hit by industrialization more than they do blue states and people living in cities. So I just see net negative after net negative. And yet he manages to convince large numbers of people that he's making America great again. And it's, it's an incredible Jedi mind trick. Back to the, book, the title of your book, Angrynomics. He is very good at marketing, merchandising, and propelling anger into our system. Is that part of this appeal? It certainly is. I mean, that's why we came up with the, t the, 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 the idea of angrynomics. It's not just the fact that people are reflexively angry. Part of the story is how anger has become a motivating force in politics again in a way it wasn't before. That essentially what we've done is we've weaponized frustration. We've taken the, the uncertainties that people feel and given them focus. So Trump is a master at this. If you think of 2016, he stumbles into the Midwest, into a coalition that's just sitting there waiting to be picked up, that is deeply resentful of Democratic elites taking them for granted. And he comes in and says, it's China that took your jobs. He says things that make sense, that resonate in a local community. He's all about rehabilitating these workers' sense of self and rebuilding the industries that give them a sense of dignity and purpose. He then seamlessly pivots and goes down to border states and starts talking about Mexicans as rapists and murderers and gun dealers and then playing an entirely race card. And he manages to bring these two things together. What is it that's the unifying force between them? It's anger. He's allowing that anger to come out as a sense of moral righteousness that binds that coalition together. So 
America is an increasingly secular country. Those who are non-secularists re, 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 are not comfortable with that, resent that. Um, is anger becoming a secular religion in this country? I don't. That's a great idea. I'm not sure it's a secular religion. It's. It, I try to think about it this way. It's like a battery or like a capacitor. That some people are just really good at charging it up. And you can keep that going for a while, but eventually that capacitor, that battery is going to drain down. And I think part of what's going on now is that the populist moment thrives on anger, particularly right-wing politics. It thrives on a kind of anger and indignation that, look at this, look at these people, what are they doing? This is terrible, our country's being destroyed. And they're creating this sense of moral and economic crisis, which creates fear, which generates anger. But it's really hard to keep that going. When I look at Biden and I think about support for Biden, I think of lots of people who are exhausted and that basically just want a two-year nap so that we can just wake up and a lot of this is gone, right? I mean, that's the kind of feeling again. And I think that the, 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 the counterpart to the weaponization of anger is the generation of exhaustion. And I think that's the two forces which we're really feeling in this election. And not to put too fine a point on it, but we have battleground tracker data for all the states that are going to be important in this election. And we continuously ask a question. In the next four years, would you like politics in America to be exciting or calm? Trump basically wins exciting by about seven to ten points. Calm, Biden wins by 20. Yeah, and that doesn't surprise me. And I think it's exactly the line, default line that's been that's been cut. The question is, when it comes to mobilization... So it's not an ideological fault line, it's a psychic fault line. Yeah, in a way. Or, 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 or perhaps, and it's not even cultural, it's not religious, but I know what you mean. It's, it's something about the way that we relate to each other. It's not just about, I don't like your politics or your policies. It's, in a sense, my sense of being and security in this world is it makes me better to be angry. I feel better about it. I feel more in control because I'm angry about this stuff. Whereas other people who are more secure are basically like, I'm just exhausted. Can we stop behaving like this? That's the voice of Mark Blythe, our special guest. What a fabulous conversation. Two more segments to go, plus another on top of that. Stay with us. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. See you in a minute. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Mark Blythe is our special bu- special guest. His book, Angrynomics, uh, you wrote it with Eric Lonergan, right? Is that correct? That is correct. He is guilty as charged. Who is Eric? Eric, Who Eric, is Eric? Lonergan is someone that you would all love to hate. He's a hedge fund manager. Okay. <laughs> but... But here's the thing. Number one, he's a British hedge fund manager. He's actually Irish, which means that he doesn't earn as much money as the people that you read about in the society pages of the Hamptons. He's not like that. More importantly, his politics are not what you'd expect from a hedge fund manager. He's somebody who's deeply concerned with inequality. He's somebody who's deeply concerned with the fragility if we, of we've been talking about of people's lives and essentially wants a better capitalism that works for everyone. Hence why our definition of angrynomics is the situation that pertains when most people believe that this is no longer benefiting them. Some in my audience know what kind of accent you have. Many may not. Explain it. I am from Scotland. I am from the east coast of Scotland. I have an accent which is just absolutely perfect, and I wouldn't change it for anything. How long have you been in the United States? 30 years, which proves that this stuff is like, you know, some kind of communicable disease that never leaves you. 
This accent is impervious to all attempts by Americans <laughs> to make me say things like water. No, water, water. When did water, ha- it's water. When did it have a D in the middle of it? And why do you soften it? That makes no sense. Water. What is water? And we're using a, <laughs> no clue. We're using a computer. What, what is a computer? Please, please, it's the Queen's English. Stop murdering it. Even if she's an elderly German squatter living off the state in England. But that's a different story. A different story entirely. How do you find America after 30 years? Uh, better, worse, about the same? You know, it's funny. For the first time ever, as we were coming into this election, just with all the anger and everything we've been talking about, I've actually been thinking about, should I get out? And I've never had that thought. And I'm long dollar in terms of investment, in terms of assets, housing, friends, connection, a whole lot. I mean, in a sense, where the hell would I go? I haven't been anywhere else for 30 years. So I'm kind of stuck. But for the first time ever, I thought maybe this isn't the best place to be. And something that got me thinking that way, there's a physics paper of all things. Bear with me on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a couple of guys at MIT. And the way that we think about equilibrium in economics is it's kind of a bunch of people get together and none of them can be bothered disagreeing. So basically everything stays the same. And that's a really bad way to think about it, because to get things to maintain a steady structure in physics is really hard and it takes tons of energy, right? And it's pretty fragile. So if you think about it that way, a stable America is a wonderful but very difficult thing. And if you kind of knock that out of equilibrium just a little bit too much, if it fragments just a little bit too much, it's very hard to put that back together again. It stays broken. And I'm beginning to wonder if we're getting very close to that point that Humpty can't be put back together again. Now, that's on my darker days, but on my happier days, when I'm talking to you and other such things, I'm much more confident in the sense that I think about the strength of the institutions despite Trump. I think about the fact that at the end of the day, everybody that I know by and large is a reasonable person. Right? I don't actually think that armed militias are going to take over the United States sometime in November. Right, So if we dial down the rhetoric and, and actually look at experience, there's still a lot of strength in the system, and that basically keeps me here. And I want to ask you something that is probably an easy target, becoming certainly an easier target in this country. We've had guests on our show before who have said, you know what? You look at Facebook, Google, Apple, and the like, uh, they are, not only are they responsible for the destruction of local journalism as an economic model in this country, and I grew up in the newspaper business in this country, so it means a great deal to me to see the hollowing out of American community journalism. But they're also responsible for algori- using algorithms to intensify and monetize aggression, anger, grievance, and polarization. I'd like your thoughts on both. Um, a guilty is charged. It's that simple. Uh, if you have a look at the four-part documentary on Netflix, which is about this, it's, they're very good on this stuff. These algorithms are designed to basically give you a dopamine response. Very simple example is why do we constantly check our phones because in doing so, we give ourselves a little micro-dopamine hit in our brain. And then the fact that we do it reinforces it and you get this loop. So all of your social media posts and all your tags and everything else is being massively analyzed to give those effects to you. Well, the downside of that is dopamine is what is released when you do bundles of cocaine. And when you don't have any blow left in your dopamine crashes, you turn into the biggest in the world, right? And essentially... 
if you strip this out of it, what Facebook buzz does to communities over time is to turn them into people who have run out of blow shouting at each other for no apparent reason. That's basically what's happening on a kind of chemical level in our brains. So is this a problem? Yeah, it absolutely is. And and sociologically, there's a, a paper by a guy called Henry Farrell that talks about what he calls homophilic communities, which sounds weird, but essentially what he means is we seek out people who are like ourselves and we only talk to each other. And then that creates a kind of a reinforcement dynamic whereby to be closer to the middle, you need to be a more radical version of you than what you usually would be. Therefore, you are more distant from anyone else. And that's the polarization effect. So imagine the worst party in the world. Everyone's coked up. Nobody has any coke left. Everybody's crashed and everyone hates each other. That's pretty much what we've managed to create. Well done, Facebook. Zuck, you suck. <laughs> I told you he was smart and funny as hell. I told you. And that that riff, among many others, is proof positive of that. So uh, we are also the consumers. Now, I'm not a Facebook person. I never have been. I got that odious whiff from the very get-go and said, I'm not going to be there. But I'm on Twitter and all that other stuff. I don't do very much Instagram. But the point is, there is something that is We have a certain amount of individual culpability. We've opted into this system, just like we opted into whatever listening device we have to talk to, either Google or Amazon. It's a microphone in our own place. If you'd asked an American 20 years ago, hey, would you put a bugging device in your own house voluntarily? They'd all say, are you kidding? What are you? Are you are you a moron? And then yet we all do it now. And so there is there is an individual culpability here. We've been sucked into this world. Oh, absolutely. So here's the one that limits all that stuff happening in my house. It's called my wife. See, my (laughs) wife is from East Germany. Now, back in the day, right, they had a thing called the Stasi, the secret police. Yeah. One in 17 people were in this. No, one in in 11 were in this secret police and one in 17 were informers or whatever, some version of this, right? The ratios were high. They were high, right? Now, what is it they wanted to know? Who are your friends? What do you think of politics? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And basically, how do you talk about this? What do you you say? What do you think of this person, right? And they would have murdered people. In fact, they did murder people to get this information, right? Whereas we just decided we would put it all on on a platform, hand it over. Yeah. And hand it over, right? So, the, you know, it's the old... It's to let the someone old, else so- monetize it, sell it, and re-monetize it, not just once, but multiples of times, every single day. That, yeah. This is something that we talk about in the book. You are the data, right? You have a property right, which is your data. Every time you work a keyboard, you put keystrokes into Facebook or, or any of these platforms, you are being monetized, exactly as you say. Now, if you think about mobile phones, what do we do with mobile phones? You get companies to line up with, say, we're going to open up this amount of digital bandwidth. And who's going to bid for it, right? 50 billion? No, I want 75 billion. You want 15 years? No, you're only going to get 10 years. We get an exchange of a property right for cash, right? That's what capitalism does. Yet we have a property right in that we are data generators. Every single one is a data generator. And we give it up for free, we should be able to let all of this into a national data trust. You can opt in or opt out, and we should sell them that data. And we could put conditions on the use of that data, including you don't get to weaponize our politics. Right. And we did so because we loved the vanity of thinking we were important enough to have our own portable phone. 
Because we remember the movies from the 80s, and only the rich guys had the portable phones. Oh, my God. So I'll tell you one that's funny one. I was, I, I, I was watching the old Charlie's Angel next to the new Charlie's Angels. Both are terrible. But I was watching the one from 2000 uh, with my daughter, and the plot device was there's a tech guy who's got a new thing where he can figure out where anyone in the world is because of a bit of software he's written. Yeah, like we, we have that. We've had that for years. We have that every day. <laughs> That's the voice of Mark Bly. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett having a great time. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We don't have repeat guests very often, but when we do, we do for a reason. And as you've understood, there's a reason to have Mark Blythe back on this show. Not only is he one of the smartest people I know, he's one of the funniest people I know. And most economists are one, but not the other. He's both. So, Mark, I want to have you explain to the audience a little bit about Angrynomics, not just as a book, but as a methodology, because I saw an interview you did talking about Siri, which is an extension of the conversation we just had about technology and its involvement in our lives. Football, not American football, what you would say the original football, soccer, as we call it here. And uh, what's the other component of that? There's three things. Well, there was Siri, there was going to the football match, and uh, there's the fact that we didn't... Have, oh, it was putting it into a dialogue, was that it? Putting it in a dialogue, yes. Yeah, yes, right. you started as a dialogue, and then... So go on from there. Okay, so Eric and I got together and wanted to write a book, but he lived in London, I live over here, we could never find a time to get together. So we thought we'd do a kind of technological hack. So I went over to London for a week, we'd done tons of prior reading, we knew what we wanted to talk about, and we just bought iPhone 7s. So we've got a couple of i7s and we put on the voice recorder with a couple of external mics and we talked the book. We then got Siri to transcribe it. Now, God help her, God love her or whatever digital thing she is. She had to deal with a man from Dublin and a man from Dundee. Yes, so, Apple well, has specialized in androgyny for Siri. So we exactly. don't know what Siri know. is. I think that she's just very angry with me anyway by the end of it. But <laughs> we got it back as a transcript and I got some students to help me and we knocked it into shape and I read it as a book and it was awful. 
It was flat, it was boring, it was two rich white guys diagnosing the world. How many times have you read that before? And we realized that what we had was a dialogue. Answer too many. Yeah, exactly. And the dialogue was great because the dialogue was filled with disagreement and bits of humor and all the sorts of stuff. So we kept it that way. Now, how did the other side, how did we get to anger? Eric is a soccer fan of one of the worst teams in English football called Watford. So, and I'm an Everton fan who are surprisingly at the top of the Premier League and no one is more surprised than me. And we went to watch the soccer match. And when we were there, we noticed something. The really hardcore soccer fans don't scream at the opposition. They don't even scream at the referee. They scream at their own players or their own fans. And they spend a lot of time screaming at their own fans for being insufficiently loyal. So we went home and did an IBM analytics Watson big data search on anger and sports fans. And what pops up is loads and loads of stories. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It's about basically out-of-control fans doing crazy things. What is it they're doing? They're basically regulating the tribe. They're the ones that set the tempo for how much anger there should be, how much aggression. This is when we move. This is when we kick off. This is when we don't kick off. And we thought, oh, my God, there's a wonderful allegory for politics here. This is how you mobilize in politics. This is how anger fits into it. So that's the the, the moment where we got the anger and angrynomics coming out that way. I didn't anticipate this line of questioning, but listening to you, I'm thinking of the European experience and the American experience. And the 20th century was pretty tough on Europe in the sense that World War I and World War II crashed a lot of aspirations, a lot of beliefs, a lot of sense of the possibility or the reason to have nationalism. It became, wow, this is really scary stuff. And lots of things can get destroyed. Lots of lives can be lost. Treasure can be expended needlessly, wantlessly. Certainly that was a feeling after World War I, less so after World War II, but it was an enormously draining experience. And the sense I get as an American looking at that Europe pre-20th century is that a lot of countries in Europe had an identity and had a belief and had a vigor about themselves, and a lot of that dissipated after the two world wars because it was either thought it was dangerous or they just didn't have the belief in it anymore. I'm not sure that's a particularly coherent thought or even a coherent explanation, but I wonder if you see anything like that happening in America, this frustration. What are we frustrated with, that America isn't what it should be, what we believed it was? And are we getting that sort of European ennui in this country? So the weird thing about American identity, if there is one singular American identity for me, and particularly American nationalism, it's based upon the fact that anybody can come here and be an American. Right? It's a transformative nationalism. Every other nationalism in the world is either blood or soil. You're born here or you're part of the race. None of those claims are central to American nationalism or identity, but they have become so. Right? In a sense, America started to move more in a European direction in the sense of nativism in the sense of excluding foreigners, despite the fact that the entire country is built out of foreigners historically, right? So there's this way in which there's a shift, I think, towards a kind of more primal understanding of identity, which you see very much on the nationalist right. What you see in Europe, and this is also where their new nationalism come from, if you think about the Le Pen and the French right and alternative for Deutschland and this sort of stuff, is precisely this idea that, like, why am I ashamed to be German? I didn't do the concentration camps. That was 80 years ago. What's going on with that? So there's this legitimate question of the turning away from that and the costs associated with it, plus the whole of the EU, which is just a giant 
anodyne, technocratic, baffling sort of ugh of politics in the middle of Europe, which is designed to suck the joy out of everything. Hence why Brexit seemed like a good idea until the cost became apparent. But nonetheless, I see that ultimately the United States had a, the weirdest nationalism in the world because it was based upon a, a non-nativism. And now you see everywhere that that nativist reaction is becoming more, more common. Now, this is a grotesque oversimplification, but during the debate in this country about prohibition, one of the component parts of it was there were Protestant white Americans from certain parts of Europe who had been here for a while who resented the sudden arrival of Germanic immigrants and other immigrants and they th and Irish immigrants who they thought were drunkards and prohibition was in part fueled by a hostility to these newly arrived immigrants. Europe had a continental war, World War I, we had prohibition. Like I said, a grotesque oversimplification, but there are parts of it that are, that are somewhat similar. Yeah, I mean, the cultural conflicts are certainly there. I mean, if we think of other contemporary fault lines of American politics, the Second Amendment is endlessly fascinating to Americans and the defense of the right to bear arms. But what they don't see is the fact that, A, this is a massive country whereby owning weapons has actually been there for really for a very long time, and that it's also part of the cultural capital in a way that just isn't in Europe. And why is it not in Europe? Because giving European guns tended to produce very, very bad things. Whereas in the United States thus far, it has not been weaponized in the same way. Citizens' militias are a thing of the moment, certainly, and there may be a reason to be caused to be concerned by them. But this is not 1920s Germany, where you have 50,000 people running around with guns in the Fry Corps, basically blowing up national politics. It's a very different thing. So these kind of... Uh, questions of culture and identity that are based around these various lodestones. If we think about the American attitude about why abortion is so central to so many people's conception of self and belief, that's true in other countries, but not to the same extent as well. So, you know, these are unique facets of American political culture that have been there for a long time. And at different points in history, they get weaponized, particularly in angry times. Particularly in angry times. That's the voice of, voice of Mark Blythe, our special guest. For those of you on our radio audience, more than 75 radio stations around the country, we have to bid you farewell. That includes Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124. But for those who love the Takeout Outtake Especial, one more segment. Stay tuned for that. Be back in just a minute. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. He is smart. He is funny. He is Scottish. His name is Mark Blythe. Mark, uh, how have you dealt with the lockdown? And if you could tell my audience one or two things that you have streamed or binge that you are glad you did, what would they be? All right. So in terms of watching stuff, I allow myself two hours of television a week. That's all I do. I don't do very much. Brilliant. So I have a backlog of about 50 shows that everyone's like, what do you mean you haven't watched this yet, right? <laughs> so I can't actually talk to people about TV because I don't watch enough. So that one's kind of gone. What I did like, I did watch Good Omens. It's a six-parter, which is on Amazon Prime, uh, based off of Terry, Hat Terry Pratchett's uh, book, Good Omens. I'm not usually a fan of that stuff, but it was brilliant. And what I also got into was The Crown. Mm -hmm. And the reason I got into The Crown is not just because the acting is also brilliant, because they actually deal with all these micro-episodes in British political history, which are incredibly important, that you never talk about. You never see people, and they really go in depth into this sort of stuff. So that was an unexpected treat as well as that. In terms of surviving the pandemic, well, you've got two choices. You either become an alcoholic, 
alcoholic or you grow a Taliban beard. Um, I tried the alcoholic one. I was getting too fat. I needed to stop. So I'm actually doing this recording from my basement, which is a music room. If you, I don't know if everyone can see this. You can see various guitars behind me. I've got an electronic drum kit over there. So basically, I survived by relearning drums. That was my lockdown project. And I think I've got... I've got so I, I would describe my level as John Bonham's much less talented grandmother. I think that's where I am at this point in time. There's time. There's plenty of time, Mark. All I will say is uh, if you're chasing John Bonham, you're chasing the right one. Uh, you mentioned his name. I consider him the most important drummer in rock and roll history. You might have others. Uh, who are your, some, some of your favorite drummers when you think about people who change the way it sounds and, and the way music is played? Definitely Bonham. I mean, if we think about the Immigrant song, just the way that that is played. I mean, he's playing triplets over four all the way through. I mean, it's just... That is hard as hell to do that. It's a really difficult thing to do. Uh, other five. Look it up, kids. Triplets over four. Yeah. You'll find a nice little rabbit hole to go down. Trust me. Right. Other ones from that generation in particular, Keith Moon. Keith Moon really was amazing. But the most amazing one actually is Ringo Starr. Because if you listen to, like, the, one of the reasons the Beatles songs are so light and esoterically and poppy and all the rest of it is because he does nothing. Mm-hmm. And the art of doing nothing, right? Yep. If, if you do Ticket to Ride, right, Ticket, the, the chorus to Ticket to Ride, or the, the verse to Ticket to Ride is basically bass, bass, tom, 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 bass, bass, tom, tom, tom. And then there might be a snare in it. And there's nothing going on, and it right. sounds fabulous. Yep. So the ability to do nothing well, that, that's always a goal. Ringo and Charlie Watts is like that also with the Rolling Stones. He is restrained also as a rock and roll drummer. You know, a weird thing about Charlie Watts is Charlie Watts legendarily doesn't play all the beats in the hi-hat. He pulls off for the last one. So rather than going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, you got one, two, three, four, one, two, three, hit, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, hit. So there's a very, it creates a space in his sound which again is very much the sound of the stones. So I read somebody wrote on Twitter a while ago, there were no lockdowns. There were just middle-class people at home where poor people brought them things. Oh, that's a great description. I wish I'd written that. (laughs) That is actually a fantastic description of the entire thing. Yes, I think that's true. Perhaps another one would be the reason Amazon suddenly got so valuable is because rich white people discovered there was more they could buy than they ever thought possible. Yeah, and and the pandemic and the lockdown has been experienced utterly differently. And as you mentioned earlier on, experienced differently along this inequality continuum. Oh, absolutely. And not just the notion of, you know, you're an essential worker. Why don't we give you $1 more than minimum wage? Thanks, essential worker. <laughs> While you're doing three jobs to pay your rent. Thanks, essential worker, right? Also, in the way that the recovery is played out with Fed and Treasury support. I mean, economists call this the K-shaped recovery. So if you think, basically, if you're on the top half, you have assets. The Fed came out and basically said, lads, we've got this covered. We'll buy anything. Don't worry about it. That immediately creates an incentive for people to buy the stuff they've said they'll buy that stabilizes the market oh you don't have any assets you just earn wages we might send you a check who uses checks in the 21st century unless you don't want the check to go there i mean has nobody ever heard of the phrase honestly your checks in the mail i mean that's basically saying i'm not going to pay you so we as usual the working stiff got stiffed and continues to get stiffed and those who basically finance politics have insurance I mean, that's the other side of the lockdown. In the last minute we have, you mentioned climate change. 
It has been described as existential. Do you believe it is that dire? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, my God. It's, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I was looking today. Finally, they've begun to factor into the prices of real estate down in Florida. The, the fact that uh, the water's already at your lawn and your front doorstep is six inches from the lawn. And Charleston, South Carolina, the, it used to go up two and a half centimetres every 10 years. It's now doing that every two years. 40% of U.S. real estate of value is concentrated within 10 miles of the coast. We're all going to get our feet wet very soon. And we're all going to experience the types of losses that will destroy the insurance industry. And here's the wee thing about capitalism we never think about. Underneath the banks, underneath the contracts, underneath everything is this thing called insurance. And if you can't insure and you can't reinsure, the whole thing stops. And that's something we're going to have to start dealing with really soon. Yes. Uh, I'll just drop uh, three letters on you as related to that and the financial crisis. A-I-G. Look it up, kids, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Mark Blythe, what a pleasure. It's been too long. It will not be too long in the future. Have a great election season. Enjoy things at Brown. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Always a pleasure. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seekers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.